Well, good morning. I'm thankful to continue our study in 1 John. If you're able, please open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We said last time that we're approaching the end here, and we are in that final section in chapter 5, where John is making some final thoughts. Today we're looking at verse 18. Today's sermon will be structured in three parts. Part number one, of the saint, that's 18a. Part two, of the Christ, 18b. And part three is of the devil, 18c. That's the general outline for today's message. To give us some context, we're going to continue to begin our reading in verse 13 of John chapter 5. So I trust you're open there now, looking at verse 13. Read with me. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. And here's our verse for this morning. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let us pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we ask that you would help us now in unpacking the treasure that is in this one verse. Father, we ask for your help because we need it. Guide us by the Holy Spirit that you have gifted to those of us who believe the anointing that we have from above. May he instruct us in our hearts this morning as we consider the truth of your word. May it all be for the glory of Christ and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is a conclusion? What is a conclusion? Hopefully my children who are learning language arts can answer this question. They have been taught how to write a sentence, how to use proper punctuation, and grammar, and so on. They have been introduced to the topic of themes and characters and settings. All of this is literary and linguistic training. But what is a conclusion? 
one might quickly respond, well, it's the opposite of the introduction. Noah Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, defines the word conclusion as this, in part, the close of an argument, debate, or reasoning, an inference that ends the discussion, or a final result. King Solomon illustrates this when he writes at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Yes, as one profitable commentator observes, here ends this book. And you have heard the whole of what deserves regard, and it lies in these few words. So as we come to the end of 1 John this morning, what we will see in this conclusion is not the opposite of his introduction, but rather, as Noah Webster would say, the final result of everything he has said from the beginning. Here is what I want to use to bring us forward into this sermon. God has given us a storehouse of precious truths that we must continually remind ourselves of. These truths reveal who Christ is and who we are in Him and what benefits we receive through our union with Him. This is good news because Christ has promised to give us rest and comfort during our trials when we come to him. With that in mind, let us consider this one verse. Look with me at verse 18. This is our first heading of the saint. This is regarding the saint. You among us here who believe in Christ. Verse 18a, we know that no one who is born of God sins. As we continue our study in 1 John 5.18, it's good to remind ourselves where we have been. We entered the final pericope of John's letter in verse 13. We started reading there this morning. And John transitioned into this final section with these words, if you remember. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And when we began uh, studying this final pericope, beginning in verse 13, we identified that that was a purpose statement. That John was giving us in that verse, verse 13 of chapter 5, his motivation, his purpose for writing this whole epistle. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, so that what? So that you would be burdened? So that you would doubt your salvation? No, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the purpose statement. John disclosed his motivation for writing this whole letter in that one verse. Is that what you would expect him to say? Is that the way you've received all of the sermons that have preceded this one today? 
It has been my experience personally and my experience with others as we've talked about 1 John is that oftentimes it feels like they have a burden on their back and they feel like they're not even saved. They question their salvation. They say, is this me? Well, this isn't the first time that we've broached this topic as we've discussed 1 John. And I trust that you have not come with a spirit of legalism even this morning. When you consider the beginning of verse 18, that we know that no one who was born of God sins. Again, the knee-jerk reaction is that, well, that's not me, because I certainly sin. So again, what we have here in this one verse to remind us is that we have a storehouse of truths. And it's not just a storehouse of truths in this one verse, but it's going to be a storehouse of truths through verse 20. Because verse 18 through 20 of this chapter all start with the declaration, we know. Have you noticed that? It all starts with a declaration, we know. Verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, and we know. So these are things that John wants us to remember. These are things that he wants to remind us that we know. Now, here's the first question. Who is the we? We made a big deal as we began this epistle of the word we from chapter 1. Let's go all the way back. If you can flip in your Bibles back to chapter 1 of 1 John, let's remind ourselves what we said about the word we in this epistle. Listen to how many times the word we is used. This will remind us where we've been. 1 John 1, starting in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announce to you. Now what we said from the beginning was that this is the apostolic we. These are the apostles. What John is giving forth in this brief letter is the apostolic declaration of the truth of Jesus Christ. Now why was that important? Remember the context of this whole letter is that false teachers had crept into the church teaching a counterfeit Jesus, teaching a counterfeit Christ, and they wanted to draw those in the church to them. And John is making the declaration that these false teachers do not have apostolic authority. They're not teaching the true apostolic doctrine. And so in these brief five verses, beginning in chapter 1, we see the repetition of we over and over again. Because John is saying, listen to us, the apostles. This is the true Christ. This is the true, the true doctrine. This is the true Christian ethic, which must be heard, preached, and believed. 
even though this is the approved authentic doctrine delivered to all the churches with apostolic authority in contrast to the false teachers who have crept in. In this verse, verse 18, I believe there is a sense in which the we here now includes those whom the Apostle John is writing to, even us. So when he says in verse 18, we know that no one who sins is born of God, or no one who is born of God sins, I think there's room now to include the church. Because, listen to what he said in verse 3 in chapter 1, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, why? Purpose statement, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And I believe now at the close of John's letter, and he's been carrying this apostolic doctrine and truth that has been once and for all delivered to the saints through the apostles coming from Christ is now given to the church. And now what John had prayed for in the beginning of this epistle is now being disclosed in a resulting conclusion. Everything I've said, John would say, up until this point is now given to you, and here's what we know now. If you believe everything that I've said from verse 1 of chapter 1 up into verse 18 of chapter 5, this is we who now confess this. Even us, brothers and sisters. So that's just talking about the first two words in verse 18. We know. That now is who the we is. It's all of us who believe what John has said up to this point. And what is he saying? We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, I want to talk about the saint being born of God. Some translations may say begotten of God. The saint is born of God. The saint is begotten of God. John has said this repeatedly. 1 John chapter 2, verses, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him or begotten of him. He is born again. Thank you, brother. <laughs> You're doing so good. The saint is born of God because he is born again. He is born from above. But then John says something that sounds scandalous if you haven't been with us through this whole epistle. The saint does not sin. 
the one born of God does not sin. Now, if you recall in previous verses where John has repeated the same truth, because John has been in the habit, if you recall, of repeating these truths over and over again in this epistle, where we went to John's gospel, where Jesus was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and indeed those around him who had faith in him. And Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And we didn't stop there. We recognized last time he said, But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now, we made this observation. Those of us here who believe in Jesus Christ have been set free of the Son. We've been set free from the bondage and dominion of sin. And yet Jesus, in verse 34 of John's Gospel in chapter 8, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So are you a slave of sin? Well, no, I've been set free by the Son. Oh, so you don't commit sin? Well, no, I commit sin. Well, then we have the same predicament in John chapter 8, verse 34, as we seemingly have in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Is that what Jesus was saying? That if you have been set free by the Son, you do not sin any longer? Is that what John is saying here in his epistle? That if you've been born of God, you no longer sin? I remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that that is not what he's saying. That is what false teachers even today twist to make people think that they can, to make brothers and sisters in Christ think that they can be fully sanctified in this life and commit no sin. It is a popular belief in some circles. And the burden that that is put on the back of Christians is an awful thing. May it not be done here. This is what John means. Let's have John interpret John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. This is what he's, what he's getting at. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. It's this idea of practicing sin. If you practice sin unrepentantly, if you have a relationship with your sin that you do not hate it, but you love it, then you have not been born of God. This is John's point. The one who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. Because remember, John has already said, the one who says he has no sin makes God a liar. Now, how do those two things go together? Think about the circles who believe that you can be fully sanctified and actually commit no sin in this life. John has said in the same letter that if you say you have no sin, that you make God a liar. Now, there's a difference between sinning and being a slave of sin. There's a difference between sinning and practicing sin. This is why John says in chapter 3, verse 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or know him. Those are very polarizing words that 
get to some of the tools that false teachers use, again, to make you read this epistle and say, I'm not even getting out of this epistle what John said he wrote it for. Remember, why did John write this epistle? To question your salvation? To put a burden on your back? No. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the question. Do you love your sin? Are you waiting to leave this place so that you can sin again? If the answer to that question is no, that's the last thing that I want. Then the motivation for why John wrote this letter should be resounding in your heart. Because you know, brothers and sisters, that you have eternal life. Because no one who has not been born of God hates their sin. It's the opposite. Everyone who has not been born of God loves their sin. Same thing goes for Jesus. And this question is ringing in my ears. Do you love Jesus? And if the answer to that question is yes, even if it's a love that is the size of a mustard seed, if the answer to that question is yes, do you love Jesus? Then you are born of God. Because it is impossible to love Jesus, even the size of a grain of a mustard seed, if you still have a heart of stone. This is what John has been laboring to give us in this letter. The true Christ, the true gospel. But there is a way in which we can understand 1 John. We can understand this idea of not sinning because of the work that God has begun in us. We've talked about this commentary in the past. It's called the Glossa Ordinaria. It's a medieval church commentary, mostly compiled from quotes from early church fathers. Listen to one of the commentary notes on this verse. David had sinned greatly. But because he was born of God, he belonged to the family of the children of God. Therefore, he had not sinned the sin unto death. Because he was repentant. We talked about previously this sin unto death. There is a sin unto death, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And we talked about how, as believers, our sins do not lead to death. Our sins have all been paid for once and for all on the cross of Christ. Even though we sin, indeed, brothers and sisters, those sins do not merit for us death, because Christ has merited for us eternal life. And so our sins do not lead to death. In talking with a dear brother in the congregation about the verse about the seed of God abides in you. In 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. We talked about how the anointing in this seed is the Holy Spirit. 
But I also think that there is an application to be made in the new man that is born inside of us the moment that we believe. Remember Paul saying, I don't do the things that I want to do. I do the things that I do not want to do. Who will save me from this body of death? Then he goes on to a doxological praise of Jesus Christ who has set him free. Remember, if the, sin, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. There is a way in which the new man does not sin. The man who is born in you does not sin. You might say, but I'm one person. When I sin, it is me sinning, right? When you sin, is it you sinning? Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 7. In fact, this will be a little bit of a lengthy quote. If you're able and you would desire, turn to Romans chapter 7. But listen to what Paul says. I'm going to start in verse 14. And take a sip of water while I hear pages turning. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it. Interesting. But sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak for the good that I want I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want but if I am doing the very thing I do not want I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me I ask the question again when you sin is it the new man in you sinning in a way we can say no it is the old man in you that is sinning it is the flesh that is sinning. Now, take that into verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who grants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is a battle going on in the life of the believer, and it's a battle against sin, and it's a battle between the old man and the new man. It's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. So when John says, no one who is born of God sins, we can say, number one, you don't practice sin because you don't love sin. But number two, we can also say that the new man in you, who does not desire sin, is not the one who is sinning. It is your flesh. There is a battle going on, even in your own body, mind, 
and spirit. And yet the spirit is in agreement with the word of God that we are the children of God. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this verse does not put a burden on your back where you feel tired and weary and never want to go in this epistle again. I rather pray that this epistle is one that you will run to when you are weary so that you may know that you have eternal life because of the work that God has begun in you. Again, what is your relationship to your sin? If the answer is you hate it, run to this epistle. Run to Christ who is disclosed to us in this epistle. That is of the saint. Should stay on the notes. Section 2 of the Christ, verse 18b. But he who was born of God keeps him. He who was born of God keeps him. We've heard about the saint, and now we're going to hear about the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 18b, but he who was born of God keeps him. You may have older translations that may see the one who was born of God keeps himself. There has been some debate and some conversation about who is the one in view. Without giving you a big history of interpretation on this one verse, I do not believe it is the saint who is being spoken of here, the one who has already been declared as begotten of God, who does not sin. That is us, brothers and sisters, who believe. I believe now John is telling us something about the true Christ, who he has been confessing from the beginning of this epistle, even chapter 1. Something about the Son and something about His begetting. We are begotten of God. We are born of God in a sense that corresponds and does not correspond to the way the Son of God is begotten. The Son of God was begotten in time like us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Remember when he said, That which we have touched, that which we have laid our eyes on, we are declaring to you. This is what we're celebrating this time of year. The incarnation. The Son was begotten in time and assumed flesh. Jesus the Messiah is the divine Son of God. And Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. What I want to do briefly in this section of, of the Christ is not give you a systematic theology of Trinitarian theology, although that would be profitable and we will touch upon it. But I want to just at least give you, as we are in this season of the Incarnation and celebrating it, something of understanding what it means that Jesus is begotten. So I want to talk about the three begettings of Christ. I believe scripture show three begettings of Christ. That he was begotten from eternity. That he was begotten in time. And that he was begotten from the dead. Let us unpack these three briefly. Number one, that Jesus was begotten from eternity. Proverbs chapter 8 
says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, from everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. This idea of being brought forth is what we know as the eternal generation of the Son. That He comes from the Father outside of time. We confess that the Son was begotten from eternity. That He comes from the Father, not as a creature. Not in time, but outside of time. If you want to unpack that truth further, I would encourage you to go back to the sermon series on our website where I covered Proverbs chapter 8. And we unpacked that truth of eternal generation deeper. But this is concerning the begottenness of the Son from eternity. That He comes from the Father. And that He has the same essence as the Father. That He's, fancy theological word, consubstantial with the Father. Strictly and simply because He was eternally generated from the Father outside of time. Our Lord Jesus, our Lord the Son, is the Son of the Father. Not in name only. And not because of his incarnation in Bethlehem, but because he has been eternally begotten of the Father. He is eternally begotten of the Father. John says this in his gospel. John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. John is making a comment now about the eternal generation of the Son that happened before His incarnation. Full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. Verse 18. The only begotten God, that is Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Oh, the depths that we can plumb and never get to the bottom if we were to unpack the doctrine of eternal generation. Simply put, this is the begetting from eternity. But as we've said before, he was also begotten in time. Matthew 1. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is our Lord the Son being begotten in time, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law. 
And we know and confess that he was not just born from eternity. He was not just born in time, but he was born or begotten from the dead. Listen to Paul in the book of in the letter to the Colossian church. He is also head of the body that is Christ, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Other places, Paul will call him the first fruits of the resurrection. This idea is saying that there is a harvest to come. It's anticipating a harvest. And Jesus is the first of that harvest. What is the harvest? It's when you will be resurrected from the dead. Everyone in this room, we have said before, will rise from the dead in their flesh. There is a resurrection coming. A resurrection unto life. A resurrection unto death. Those who have sinned the death that leads to death will be in the resurrection that leads unto death. Those who sin a sin that does not lead to death will be in that company of the resurrection unto life. Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection unto life. He is the firstborn from the dead. But you too will be born from the dead as well. But he is the firstborn from the dead. That is his begottenness from the grave. This is a quick excursus of the three begettings of Christ. Begotten from eternity, begotten in time, begotten from the dead. You say, Pastor, this is pretty complex. How am I ever going to remember this? We confess it. We may even confess it before the Lord's Supper today. The creeds of the church confess these things. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Do you see why I made the effort, and Pastor Perkins and I made the effort to include the word begotten? Not only because it's scripturally true, but here's the scandal, brothers and sisters. It's actually in the original language of the creed. And because of deviant theology today, it's been taken out. Because we've lost this doctrine of eternal generation in the church. But it's in the original language of the creed. May it remain there. May we confess it. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. What is that? The begottenness from eternity, eternal generation. It's in the Creed. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. Yes, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all these early creeds, they embody these truths which we ought and do confess. The Incarnation, the Resurrection, and yes, the eternal generation of the Son is all confessed in these early creeds. But the application that I think is so dear to this portion of verse 18 has to do with the Son, the one who is begotten of God. 
what he does. What does he do? What does the verse say that he does? He keeps him. He keeps him. But he who was born of God keeps him. Oh, let me just read some of these verses that may stir your heart to worship. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. It's not just in the New Testament where all of a sudden Jesus is protecting his people. This protecting of the Son of the people of God was done even from the Old Testament. Remember Psalm 34, verse 7? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. In our time in Daniel... Brother Brad and I labored to show you these truths. Daniel 3.28, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than trust and serve and worship any god except their own, Yahweh. And Jesus saved them, rescued them. Or Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. My God sent his angel, Daniel said, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Now that's a commentary in the book of Daniel of what Daniel, what his appeal was to Nebuchadnezzar. But the point is this, who shut the mouth of the lions? Who saved those men out of the flames? The one who is begotten of God keeps his own. We sang about it this morning. Psalm 125. We'll get there. What does this effect have? The effect of the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, keeping the saints. What effect does that have? Another hyperbolic statement. Verse 18c. This is section 3. We're closing the sermon. We're landing the plane, I promise. Verse 18c. And the evil one does not touch him. Again, you might say, well, that's not me. The evil one surely touches me. Is that your definition of the evil one touching you? If you are afflicted, if you are tormented, if you are bereaved by the afflictions in this life, even by the evil one, who we wrestle with and his demonic minions. Would you say this verse is not true of you because the evil one is touching you? Listen to Job chapter 1 verses 8 through 12. The Lord said to Satan, "You have have you considered my servant Job? From there, for there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has? Interesting. What do you think that hedge is? 
think this verse has something to do with it. Have you not built a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. That was the condition. Do not put forth your hand on him. Here's a question. Did Satan put a hand on Job? I think the knee-jerk reaction is, yeah, certainly did. You kidding me? From physical sores to losing children to losing wealth to having his own wife say, curse God and die, Job. Just That's the advice of a godly wife. No. I don't believe Satan did put a hand on him in the way that God had said you may not do that. And so... As a springboard back into this verse, the evil one does not touch you in the way that you think he does. Remember that new man? That new man that's in you that does not sin? Satan can't touch him. Satan cannot touch that new man. That seed that abides in you and is growing, Satan cannot touch him. Oh, yes, trials and persecution and famine and all these things may separate us from pleasure, separate us from even mental peace, but they cannot separate us from the love of God because Satan cannot touch the one who is born of God. He can't even lay a hand on him just as Satan could not lay a hand on Job. We sang Psalm 125. I want to turn there real quick. Psalm 125. We sang it this morning. I think it's making a beeline to 1 John chapter 5, 18b. This truth was not just is not just true for New Covenant saints, brothers and sisters. It is true for all those who are in Christ. Man, Psalm 119 is long. Listen to verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion who cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. We have talked about the eschatological fulfillment of Jerusalem, of true Israel, being those members in the new covenant, even you, brothers and sisters. And just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds His people. Because the one who is begotten of God keeps them. Yes, the evil one does not and cannot touch us. You might say, but pastor, I'm afflicted. I'm sorrowful. I'm beaten down. I'm tired. Amen. I'm all those things. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle John says to you, child, 
this is what we know. We know that we have overcome the evil one. 1 John 2.13 We know that we live forever. 1 John 2.17 We know that we have eternal life. 1 John 2.25 We know that we have passed out of, light, out of death. 1 John 3.14 We know that we live through Christ. 1 John 4.9 We know that God abides in us. 1 John 4 We know that we have confidence in the day of judgment. 1 John 4 We know that we have overcome the world. 1 John 5 We have confidence before him, brothers and sisters. 1 John 5.14 We know that no one who is born of God sins, but the one who is begotten of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, keeps us. In conclusion, in conclusion, listen to Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator. Who's talking to you, brothers and sisters? It's your creator. Listen to him. Thus says the Lord, your creator. O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the water, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Think of Daniel. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for this word. You are a savior. A savior who saves us beyond even our wildest thoughts and hopes. You are a savior who is with us, who holds us by the hand through all that we are going through. You are a savior who has made promises to us that you have kept and will keep. You are a Savior who is with us through the rivers that will not overflow us. You are a Savior who will walk with us through the fire and we will not be scorched. You are a Savior who tells us, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Let us see that as our ultimate good and not the temporal blessings that have been given to us. You have called us by name. Oh, Lord, that is covenant love. We are not a faceless people that you have redeemed, but we are individuals that you have called by name, who Jesus has lived a life on their account, has died a death to pay their debt, has risen from the dead for their justification. You are a Savior who says... You are mine. Lord, we are yours this morning. Thank you for feeding us out of your word. We beg you, Lord, feed us now at the table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.